Welcome to Travel Stories on the Milanomics Podcast Network with your hosts, Trevor Mountcastle and Tom Kim. This week, episode 15, we take a look at our recent summer travels. Tom, it's great to be back with you. I know that you've had a trip. I've had a trip. I'm just so darn excited to be back here recording with you today and to be able to just chat about our experiences. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I had some good travels. I think you had some. I actually want to hear about your travels because this might be my first time really getting a deep dive into what you did. And the same thing with you. I think we intentionally waited to actually talk about our trips other than following little things on social media, just because we wanted to see how that kind of excitement kind of conveyed out for the pod. Well, what can we say? We have to sacrifice for our listeners. Exactly. And you know, the thing that I just almost want to set the table for this episode with is a tweet that you, it was either a tweet or a Facebook post that you said, I think it was effectively sitting in a lounge in Doha, texting a friend on a cruise in Europe on my way down to South Africa. While having Japanese food. Oh, while having Japanese food. And I just feel like that that just summarizes our community so perfectly. I think it does. I think we are the apex of globalization, if I have to coin something. Because how many times do you have such a nexus of different cultures, destinations, parts of the world, all kind of colliding? Probably not very many other places other than these kinds of interesting travel situations we're in. It's true. And and the funniest part, I thought, was is you were, you were in Doha... Connecting in Doha, I think, what, four or five days before we ended up getting there. But we're probably getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. You're, yeah, you're get, yeah, exactly. Let's save it for the story. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to talk your travel or should I start with my travel since I left, I think, a little bit before you did, right? I guess if we do it in chronological order, yes. I think you go first. There we go. So I think I might have mentioned this on the last podcast and I definitely mentioned because we recorded the checking in with Robert actually just the day before I left on that trip. And I was tracking Lufthansa first class. And I think I had mentioned on that episode that I had actually booked the flights that we had at that time on Tuesday, like literally two days before we were to fly out. And I have to admit, I made a, a goof, unfortunately. I had a situation where I had such confidence. And so I booked the 85K award thinking that I could save the cancellation fee on Aeroplan versus the 70K award. And turns out Lufthansa did not release space, which was very unfortunate. And so we ended up flying, which was nice. It was Brussels Air. It was a nice flight, not horribly timed. And so we did get to Venice where we were trying to get to. Connected in Brussels, I have to say Brussels is an airport I don't want to connect in many more times. It took us about an hour to clear, to arrive into Brussels, get through customs and get to the lounge. And yeah, it was probably the worst connection that I've had in quite some time. You're kind of entering Heathrow territory there. It really felt like it. And then as we get out of customs, we see this just deluge of people. I mean, the queue felt worse than anything I've ever seen at Disney World. This thing felt worse than you know any customs hall. The Dulles custom hall is pretty big. This thing was probably two or three times that size, just full of people. And I look at my wife and I'm like, this is not going to be a good day for us. To which she sort of looks around and then sees European flights to the right. And I'm like, we dodged a bullet because that was customs to leave the Schengen zone. 
I can't even imagine how people were doing that. I mean, I know Brussels has a big African network, but this, the queue just was incredible. But we ended up making it to Venice. The hotel was interesting. So I literally booked the first night at the Hyatt Murano, which is on Murano Island, not the same island as as where St. Mark's Square is. I booked that as we were sitting down on the plane for the flight from Dallas to Brussels. And I was literally in the phone with them to coordinate our free transfer because the Hyatt Murano actually gives you a free airport transfer. You know, nice so perk. just like, yeah, really nice perk, like an 80 euro perk, I think. Yeah. And so I had to coordinate it that way. And then by the time we decided that we were going to just stay there the second night before our cruise, I ended up having to pay cash. It was just like, I took last minute travel planning to the extremes and it bit me every way. That every way from like I didn't even realize you, you booked your hotel that close to travel. I guess you didn't know exactly where you'd end up, huh? I really didn't. I mean, I had alerts to Milan. I had alerts to Ferenz, to Bologna, and to Venice. And I was just going to go with whatever, you know, award worked out. I just didn't have a preference. And the Hyatt Murano had something like a 72-hour cancellation policy. And so I just, mm-hmm. until I had confidence, until I was sitting on that plane, because we were at Dulles Airport literally checking for Lufthansa award space either later that day or the next day, because we would have gone home. If we could have gotten first class on Friday night, we would have gotten home. Listeners, this man's dedication to Lufthansa is legendary. I cannot. <laughs> By the way, you know, from your house to Dulles, what is that? Like 60 miles? Is that a 120 mile round trip journey probably? It is indeed. <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> you know, I love my caviar. I love my Lufthansa first class seat. I love my first class terminal in Frankfurt. But yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I'm going to make an extra 120 mile journey just to go to Lufthansa first class. I don't know. I don't know, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a while. We wanted to get our daughter back on it. So, you know, the sacrifices we make for kids, right? We d- <laughs> <laughs> That's my story and I'm sticking I'm, to it. <laughs> I'm glad we got that on tape. <laughs> There we go. I'm I'm sure she'll play this for us at some point. We might have to play that in 20 years or something, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So again, this this trip, everything last minute, we booked a transfer from Venice down to Ravenna and probably paid a little bit more than we should have. There was risk of a train strike. And so Mm. we weren't really comfortable with the idea of kind of putting our fate in the train. Travel in Europe. I mean, the number of times I've heard about train strikes (laughs) depicting my travel. (laughs) Hey, it's better than an airport strike. And we've been hearing a lot about those. That's true. Okay. In England. (laughs) (laughs) But made it to the Explorer of the Seas, a sister ship, I should say, of Voyager of the Seas, which we've talked about in the past. I goofed on this one. We went in thinking that they were going to have some sort of childcare and thinking that the Voyager last year didn't because of COVID. Turns out that the smaller ships don't have what's called royal babies. So they don't have any childcare under three. Hmm. So that was kind of a big downer for us. May do. That's, I guess that is a big goof. Yeah. Now, mind you, we wanted the itinerary, right? Right. We selected this freebie, free cruise, got it on the wonder of the seas, as we talked about. And we wanted to do Greek Isles. We got a nice little surprise too. We were originally going to go to Kotor, Montenegro, which I still want to see at some point. And instead went to Bar Montenegro, which I had never even heard of. And it turns out that it's this really beach town. 
Mm-hmm. It really had the vibe. It had like, you know, this big kind of, you know, concrete boardwalk style thing, you know, little cafes and stuff, the restaurants, beautiful beach, you know, kind of a protected beach, but decent enough waves, right? You know, we're protected kind of like the Gulf, but waves probably midway between the Gulf and the Atlantic, I'd say. This is a place maybe Europeans would go to get their beach fix, essentially? That is my thinking. This place... I have to believe in August, this has got to be the place. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any chain hotels. They had this gorgeous looking Russian Orthodox church that we walked over to. So much gold. I was really impressed with that. It was it was worth the walk. We saw it from the ship and and said, we must go there. And mm-hmm. then, then so we the just wandered. Trump, is, that, is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> but the one kind of sad part was we didn't get off the ship until three because ship goes into like a a commercial port. They didn't want people walking. So they were busing us for free down to the little town, which was only like, I'd say it's less than two miles, but the coordination and everything just wasn't, wasn't as good as they were looking for. That's not normal. I hope it was just because of the port change. Yeah. This was the first time we'd been in there. So it took an extra half hour for the paperwork and for them to let Mm. us start disembarking. But the difference between Carnival and Royal was just so bespoke if I'm using the word correctly. Hmm. Carnival went into Newport's on the Norwegian ship we did last year. And it just like, it was just a cluster. Mm-hmm. This one, they communicated pretty well. They warned us this was the first time that we were going in there. They set up a nice little tent with water for people because people were standing out there and, you know, not in the sun because they specifically had the queue in the shade of one of the buildings. But they had, they broke out some Adirondack chairs for older folks that might need to sit. They did all these different things that like I had never seen Carnival even try to set up. Mm. And I just thought that was a really stark contrast for, you know, Royal, not a great ship, right? This ship's probably 20, 22 years old. Mm -hmm. But the caliber of just consideration, being considerate, I thought was really nice. You know, that's a really good comment about for cruises, you know, you can learn a lot about a cruise about how they set up their area when they're in port, because you'll always see the premium lines that always have extra tents. They'll have staff out there with like cold or hot towels or hot cocoa or in in the cold weather, or if it's in the hot weather, they'll have like fruit punch or iced tears. You know, there'll be, there'll be extra niceties. And that gives you some sense of kind of where your cruise line is in the pecking order. So Hot towel, cold towel, probably a premium kind of line. And like you said, you know, you can see that Royal might be a slight step up from Carnival. It's, they're still considered a mainstream cruise line. But as you said, there are more amenities. They put more thought into the customer experience at the port. Yeah. And I really felt like that shown through. Mm-hmm. Learned a couple of other interesting things on this cruise. The rest of the ports were in Greece. Corfu, mm-hmm. a Greek isle, or yep. so we think, actually has more Venetian architecture. Oh. I thought that was nice. Interesting. I didn't know that. Nor did I. Did a little research as we were planning our day and found that to be, you know, we walked around, we liked it, you know, kind of tight little streets. You know, we had just been in Venice. And so maybe because we had just been there, it was easy to see the similarities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So maybe what the Venetian, whatever government or, or I guess culture made its spread or that their influence spread all the way over to Corfu, I guess? They might have had control at some point because if you look at a map, Corfu is kind of like one of those pinch points for, is it the Adriatic or is it the Ionian? I think it's the Ionian Sea. Hmm. So maybe it was it had some military or strategic value, value I think. Probably. Yeah. And you know, Venice was known as quite the Navy, if I remember correctly. 
they were quite the naval power that, that you know, kind of what is what allowed them to exist and thrive for so long. Yeah. And it was really interesting just to see, you know, the different influences. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I'm jealous officially. <laughs> yeah. So after that, I think Piraeus was the next one on the docket. Almost the picture of this trip was, you know, gaffes and, you know, faux pas I could make. <laughs> you know, between was that, that was the theme. Well, like between you know getting the more expensive award and ending up having to fly that versus getting you know the award we wanted, paying a little bit more for transfers and stuff, we end up getting into Piraeus and we're like, okay, let's try to go into Athens. It's not too far. It's you know thirty five minutes. Oh, so is that that's the name of the port? But like, is it kind of advertised as Athens Piraeus or something like that? Yeah, the same way Civitechi is for, for Rome, Rome, even though it's like really far away. Yeah. I thought this was going to be like an hour train ride or hour drive. It ended up being only about 30, 35 minutes. But I made the mistake of looking and trusting Google Maps, which was correct actually. And then I go up to one of the taxi drivers that's just outside the ship and he quotes us almost double the price. Mm. And so I'm I'm starting to like, you know, waver in my commitment to getting into Athens. And, mm-hmm. and my wife's just like, you know what, let's just go. We want to see whether it's worth coming back here. And the reality is we knew we were going to come back to Athens anyway. Because we didn't have enough time to see the historical sites. To see all the sites. Yeah. So we end up paying, cab driver gets, like he went every possible way to like make it seem like it was a longer ride than it was. We finally get there and pay him and, you know, we're just sort of like, okay, let's make the best of this. We end up getting into old town, walking around old, old town with the stroller, a little bit much, but not impossible. Found a nice little cafe, sat, watched people, had some kebabs and kind of just enjoyed that. And then picked an Uber up on the way back. We were back at the ship in under 20 minutes, had a wonderful conversation and it cost us less than half the price. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you know, everything balanced out. <laughs> we were. And we say the same thing when we talk about this stuff. You, you know, when you're at the airport, be cautious for people that want cash only, that they don't turn on the on the meter and all this other stuff. Now, this guy, if he turned on the meter, it probably would have been more based on how many turns and turns and there were some U-turns he even made. That's how (laughs) bad this guy was. But, you know, lesson learned. We salvaged the day and still had a fun time. Sometimes you don't have a choice, right? Sometimes it's like, you know, like Rose probably was in the same situation where she's like, you know what? It's going to be a premium. We know we're taking taken, but you know what? Maybe this is the way to get there quicker, right? It's true. It's true. I mean, it wasn't the quickest way, obviously, but you know, for us, we didn't know what else we were going to find, how hard it was going to be to to get noob or anything. But you know, long story short, we'll go back to Athens. I think we'll wait until our daughter's old enough to enjoy it because mm-hmm. it just didn't mm-hmm. feel like the city. It didn't inspire us a lot, but we also oh, only had like two, three hours where we were actually in the city, maybe four. Yeah, I, I have yet to you know touch any ground in Greece, so maybe I'll join you guys next time you go to Greece. Absolutely. Be a fun travel story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when this publishes, there might still be some decent British Airways fares to Athens. Yeah, I saw that. I'm scared there's, to there's say that. but one. There's a pretty good one out there now. Yeah, yeah. So just finishing off the trip or the cruise, the next stop was Mykonos. Whatever you imagine a Greek island looks like, this was it. I mean, this felt like we were running into Instagrammers at every turn. You know, <laughs> there's a blue door and in a white building, there's an Instagrammer in front of it having a photo. <laughs> It was, you know, hilarious, but also a, it, it sounds a little beautiful, tired. though. I mean, like I see all those photos with the white houses with the blue doors, and I'm like, I would love to go there one day. Don't get me wrong; it was wonderful, and I thought it was a little humorous. Continuing that Venetian influence, there's this one little area on the island. I think it's, I think it's east. I'm trying to think if it's really truly east or not. 
And they call it Little Venice because mm. there's a collection of houses that have an exit right to the water. So it was oh, for the sea captains. Got it. And then there's a bunch of restaurants. We had a drink overlooking the water and everything, which was nice. Wandered all the way through kind of Old Town and then up to the beach just around where... So the way you get from the ship is either via launch, tender rather, or we actually had a dock, a berth, but we had to take a ferry from there Okay. to get to kind of the to Old the, Town. To the main Mykonos area or whatever. Yeah. So we ended up sitting, found a really nice place and we probably spent an hour and a half there just watching, you know, the boats come in and out, watching people walk by, swim at the beach, et cetera. Just, you know, had a few glasses of wine, had some pita. Our daughter just napped in her stroller. So we were sort of like, we don't want to have to get back on the ferry until she woke up. And we Mm -hmm. were more than happy to just, you know, enjoy the weather and everything. Yeah. I can picture it right now. I mean, I've got this mental photograph of what it looks (laughs) like and- you know, one of these, I'm probably going to have to see some of your photos just to see if it, if it matches up. Yeah, we, we have to do that. We have to do that. <laughs> I, it's times like this, I wish we recorded on YouTube so we could yeah, like just know. You know, throw up a photo. I guess we'll get some ideas. Maybe once we graduate one of these days, <laughs> we'll graduate to YouTube, huh? There you go. Yeah. So, ended up taking the ferry back to the ship and just happenstance, ship was mostly full. Captain sees us kind of, you know, figuring that we're just going to stand. And he's like, no, you got room in the wheelhouse. So we're oh, sitting in the wheelhouse on the way back to the ship. I, I know yeah. I know. for you, you probably meant more to you than most people. It definitely did. And it was nice. Captain told us about his daughter. He's like, you know, my daughter has the same eyes as yours. Oh. It, you know, there was, there was just, you know, a wonderful little interaction there for the, you know, probably only 10 minute ride back. It's kind of interesting, you know, that you managed to have that little interaction, even though there was like a sea of other tourists on that boat, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, serendipity, we'll call it that. Oh, okay. Some people make their own serendipity, I guess. Yeah. Last stop was, if I'm pronouncing it right, Agristola or Agristoli. I think this was also in the Ionian Sea. And so it had more of that kind of sand wash, you know, more of the sand colors and not the whitewashed kind of buildings. And this was the one that you could walk to from the ship. Mm. And we just kind of wandered around, had some food and just enjoyed the fact that you could kind of do whatever you wanted, just, you know, without having to get a tour or a bus or anything. Found some good gelato. Nice. Yeah, couldn't leave without some good gelato, and I think they had some toucans or some parrots at one of the one of the little places we stopped in. But overall, cruise was nice, wasn't amazing, and we were happy we did it. But it was really for the itinerary, and I think that's one of the things that I kind of come back to is is a lot of these cruise lines, unless you're looking at something really awesome like you know out of Sydney where like Royal has the Quantum out there right now which is one of the newer ships, you're going to get not the greatest ship. I do think- You know, I think that makes sense. I mean, I I think that's where they deploy a lot of their older ships is, you know, where the destination is more of the allure than the ship itself, right? And then some of these other, you know, places like the Caribbean where, you know, in many cases, the ship is more the destination than the ports themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Mm -hmm. So to finish the trip- and just because we want to leave plenty of time for yours, and I feel like we've talked to, I talked far too much. No. We had just a, a crazy, crazy way home. It was 42 hours from the time we got up to when we actually made it back to our house. I might be able to beat that, but yes, that is a lot of time. <laughs> Maybe we need to rename this episode, The Longest Trip Home. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually measure how many hours it was for me from bed to bed. Well, actually, it wouldn't be from bed to bed because there was a bed in the middle. But anyway. <laughs> oh, you did an overnight. Uh, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get, we'll there. get there. Yeah. So, had a three-hour 
drive from Ravenna to Milan, Malpensa Airport. Then we had a couple of hours in the lounge, had a three-hour flight to Cairo, had three hours to transit Cairo, and I will never do this again. We tried the transit rather than you know just paying for the visa on arrival and doing it ourselves. Turns out it takes about two hours and 45 minutes to do that. Because you're, transfer in Cairo. Yeah, yeah. It, it was just absolutely crazy. They make you wait at every turn. You got to take an airside bus and the airside bus is just, I mean, that alone waiting for that was 30, 40 minutes. Yikes. Then you're waiting for your boarding pass and everything. They ended up walking us because we had the car seat because of all mm-hmm. the driving we had to do. We had the car seat with us. And so they walk us all the way from airside to land side to check the car seat right at the, you know, at the mm-hmm. check-in desk. Mm-hmm. And then they walk us all the way back to be able to clear us and everything. So we got our boarding passes almost ourselves. We just had an escort. We saw, you know, a fun part of the airport. This is the Cairo. We'd been there, I don't know, five, seven years ago, maybe even I don't think you had a lot seven. of complimentary things to say about it back then either. No, but it's beautiful now. Oh, it's okay. really beautiful. Nicer. Yeah. The terminal looks a lot better. I don't know when they built the new stuff, but it really looks a lot nicer than, than okay. when I remember it. Little anecdote going through security, guy in front of me, everybody had to take their shoes off. They separate the men and the women, right? So uh-huh. I had all of our bags and my wife had our daughter. Okay. And so I'm dropping all of our bags in the stroller. I got a, or I think she had the stroller. So she dealt with that, but like the diaper bag, the backpack, two carry-ons. And so the guy in front of me's shoe got stuck in the x-ray, x-ray. machine. <laughs> and the, you know, the gentleman that's having people go through the magnetometer and everything comes in, you know, our side and he's telling the one guy, you know, back it up, back it up and this. And he backs it up a little bit and they pull a bag out and then they push it forward. And I'm like, there's two more bags in there, buddy. <laughs> and he's, and he looks at me like the one more word and you're going to a green room. <laughs> 20 minutes later, we finally find the offending shoe. Wow. That's a long time to be just waiting for somebody to pull a shoe out of an x-ray machine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, at one point he pulls it out and we were down to the diaper bag and the shoe. Uh And he looks at the guy doing the x-ray and I just reach over and I just pull the diaper bag out. And he gives me, he shoots me a bad look at that point. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when he's like, okay, so there's still more stuff. Let's just back it out. And the shoe comes out and all was well. It was just bad. I would not recommend any lounges, by the way, in Cairo. You literally walk through, I think, two lounges to get to the one lounge that's actually open. And it's not, I don't think it's worth the walk. I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of bad lounges in the world. There are. So ended up flying first class from Cairo to Doha. Interesting to note that because they call it first, it's Q Suites. So it's same seat as you get when you're flying long haul. But because they marketed as first, we ended up spending our five-hour layover in the Al Safwa Lounge, which is incredible. Had a nice sit-down meal, had you know nice bubbles. Our daughter got a new stuffed animal. Nice. Not the bear with the lamp, but it was just a no, nice little cutter themed. I did buy one of those, by the way. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't buy another. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't buy one. I was concerned. But yeah, no, we ended up just trying to walk and they had a little shop in the Alsa For our listeners, I guess we should explain, you know, Doha Airport has a very famous artwork right in the middle of it. It's a big yellow teddy bear with a lamp sticking out of its head. And it is, if you ever Google any photo of Doha Hamad Airport, you will probably see it. It's one of the more striking, interesting features of the airport. And they did actually have some stuffed versions of that in the one of the gift or duty-free stores and I did happen to buy one. So anyway. I'm just astonished it took them so long to finally, you know, get a stuffed version of that. Yes. Okay. Anecdote over. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And then a completely uninspiring flight from Doha to Philly. They downgraded us 
to a triple seven that had the two 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 configuration. Oh, that's, that's like, like the worst way to fly Qatar. I think it is exactly the worst way. Absolute worst way. That is another horrible downgrade. But hey, you got the all Swaffle Lounge. And I consider it like the world's only lounge that feels like a museum. It really did feel like a museum. I mean, the artwork was gorgeous. Yes. Really. And it has that kind of epic scale of a museum. That's why I think it feels like a museum because it's like they decided, okay, well, I think the ultimate in luxury, and maybe this is me channeling, you know, Mr. Al-Bakar, you know, the CEO of Qatar Airlines, you know, the ultimate luxury is to have an immense amount of space. So we're going to have so much space, you're going to feel like you're in a museum gallery. It really felt like that. I mean, they had 20 or 30 foot ceilings at some points because I was kind of roughly counting the big blocks that they had. On the and line. at least 34 or 40 feet of marble to go with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you had another cutter experience, didn't you? You know what? This was actually my first ever Key Suites, believe it or not. I have actually flown quite a bit of cutter in my life. But strangely enough, every single flight has either had that worst cutter business seat in, in the world. Or I've flown on the A380 where they had first class. Or I've flown on a 330 where they have reverse herringbone or you know a number of different equipment. I just have yet to ever... Fly Q-Suites. And it was, it was actually a very interesting experience for me. It started out, I did leave from Dulles Airport, my home airport. And let me just first say, speaking of bad lounges. Oh, no. Oh, no. So Qatar uses the Turkish lounge. And the Turkish lounge is not bad. It's not a horrible lounge. It's okay. But it was so excruciatingly crowded. I really wish they had used the Virgin Clubhouse, which is what I experienced previously on Qatar. And unfortunately, I think that at least for when I left the clubhouse, the Virgin Clubhouse was closed. It was, I guess, a remodeling or doing something perhaps related to the takeover from Plaza Premium or whoever. I thought they were open when I walked by a couple of weeks ago. Not around the beginning of July when I took my flight. I think I was flying out. I forget. Or no, was it the end of June? So end of June, not so much. And I have to say, you know, speaking of the sad state of lounges in Dulles, I would say the one thing that was kind of a little entertaining was just walking in and just the agents just pretty much turning away every single priority pass customer. In fact, it was almost comical because it would be like, sorry, we're full, no priority pass. Sorry, we're full, no priority pass. Sorry, we're full. You know, they could have just put a sign in front of, instead of making this like, you know, this huge like line of people coming in to be disappointed. But I wonder if the lounge dragons there kind of, you know, the ladies there just wanted to actually do that. Mask in the glory of saying I, no. I don't know if that's part of the fun of, of having that job. I guess that a, sorry, computer says no. Nope. Can't come in. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> but this is something to just warn about, especially in the Dulles B terminal. I think if you are a Priority Pass customer and you are there with your family and you are making a plan to enjoy some Priority Pass food and some Priority Pass lounging, I would say just forget about it, especially this summer in Dulles Airport, because whether it be the Air France or the British Airways or the Lufthansa Lounge or the Turkish Lounge, I really think your likelihood of disappointment is extremely high. Yeah. I mean, it was getting tough in the spring. Yeah. If you didn't get to that Air France Lounge before two you weren't getting in. And they were asking you when your flight was and pretty much making it clear, you know, you got two hours. That's yes. It. Yes. I think they were being pretty selective back then. And that's when it's not super busy. The summertime just, there's really, you don't have a chance. So that was kind of the ground situation, not the best, but you know, things improved. I boarded the A350, which was taking me all the way to Doha. And, you know, I have a unique experience, I think with Q Suites, you know, cause again, it was my first time, my first impression. I have a hard time with Q-Suites, actually. You know what it is? Is it the tightness of getting into the seat? No, it's that I keep comparing it to first class. Oh, so, yeah. 
Well, I mean, we always say that it's so close to first class. It is. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, this is nice, but it's, it's not as spacious as first. Wait, this is business class. Hold on. I'm not being fair. <laughs> not being fair. But, you know, I'm like sitting here thinking, oh, this is not as spacious as, you know, my first class seat. I'm like, well, yeah, because it's business class, dummy. And same with the food, same with the service. I mean, same with the PJs. It's like everything makes you want to compare it to first class, which it is not as good as first class, but very close. And for that reason, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm like not enjoying this as much as I, I think I should because, you know, it's just funny. It's a mental. I kept comparing everything to first class. <laughs> but the thing is, is like if you compare it to business class, they are definitely, they definitely. are definitely there. I mean, even with They're the service there. when they've got what, you know, mm-hmm. 20 seats. Yep. Yep. That service is still spot on. You know, I will say the my Dulles to Doha leg, I don't think I got the best team. The lady that was serving me. Well, you know, dessert came out and I was like, this is not the dessert I ordered. And she's like, yes, it is. I'm like, no, it's not. This is not the dessert I ordered. And she's like, yes, it is. I'm like, okay, well, it's just funny. It's like, why would you need to argue with the customer? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't think, you know, anyway, it turns out it wasn't. Cause you know, I was like, oh, you wanted the one with ice cream. I'm like, yes, that's what I ordered. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, that's unfortunate, but you had Q suites both legs, right? That's true. That's true. I did go to Doha. I enjoyed a different lounge. We did not get to go to the Oswafa lounge, but I have been there before. And I, I will say I did go to a different lounge. It was quite fun though. This is the new Al Morjan, you know, business class lounge in the garden area of Doha airport. I so that's where I decided to spend my time. And I find that that lounge is a little bit, I think I prefer it over the one that's in the main terminal. And I say that because again, the ceilings are much taller. It feels more spacious, even though I think it is smaller. You know, I think square footage wise, it's a smaller lounge, but I enjoyed it. And I, I did have a little bit of a snooze in the nap room there. I'm not a fan of the little chaise lounge thing that they have in there. It's not that comfortable to snooze in, but you know, I did manage to probably get like, you know, a little bit of shut eye because I was there for a while and my layover was a good seven, eight hours. Wow. That is a long layover. Yeah. So that's the one where they have, what is it? A Versace or something? The, the, Louis, Vuitton, the Louis Vuitton lounge. Louis Vuitton, LVMX. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. Yes, LVMH. LVMH. I, I'm Louis Vuitton Boyhensi. Yeah. We love them. We like the champagne that comes That's from true. that overall holding company. We've had some parodies now and again. <laughs> well, and they have the Moet Chandon, right? And it's probably Moet Chandon. I'm probably bastardizing well, it. They, they own, I mean, they have quite the sprawling empire of different liqueurs, if I'm not mistaken. They do. They Dump also, they the also street, right? probably own Vouve Clicquot, I think, and they own... Chateau Ikem and, and a couple of other things too. Oh, did they buy that one from you? Which one? <laughs> Chateau Ikem. From Kim? me. <laughs> Chateau Ikem. <laughs> Chateau Ikem. <laughs> Folks, can you tell this is unscripted today? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, Chateau Ikem is not Chateau Ikem. So. <laughs> My attempt at humor actually works at least. But. No, 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 no. So they, they established this sort of lounge within a lounge, as I yes. understand it, right? And is it a paid lounge access or is I it you just the, pay for, for your average, drinks and- Average business class passenger even? Yes, I think it is extra upcharge. I think if you're maybe a Qatar Airlines gold or platinum member, I think maybe there might be some complimentary access. But I believe the only thing that's upgraded is you get to feel more exclusive and you might have some slightly different food options, but- I guess unless you're, you know, a wealthy Instagrammer, I would probably pass. Well, interesting nonetheless to know how that actually looks. Mm-hmm. 
I know that Lucky had written about it and he had been there before they opened, but right. didn't really, I didn't really get that feeling like it was just incredible or anything. It just looks like another restaurant in the lounge. It's basically just another dining area from what it looks like, from the outside at least. Yeah. With good sponsorship, I suppose. Yeah. Well, you know, with toast you can get with like the Louis Vuitton logo on it. Yay. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe that's worth it. I don't know. I'm going to see if I can get in with my first class boarding pass next time. All right. Give it a CL Safo when you can get toast with Louis Vuitton's logo. Yes, yes, yes. Fancy breadcrumbs. <laughs> so yeah, so I did actually leave Doha and my final destination, I guess, if just to keep people in not any more suspense here, is, was Cape Town in, in South Africa, which is, and I did, this was all a part of an award that I booked like 12 months ago, which was nice. I did meet up with some friends of mine who were already in Cape Town at the time. This is my second time in Cape Town. And I will say first and foremost, South Africa is great. I love it. I enjoy South Africa. It is quite the deal. You know, you know, the three of us would have dinner for like 60 bucks, including tip, including, you know, drinks and multiple courses and everything's great. I think you will love to dine in South Africa because your dollar goes extremely far. That's awesome. And we're not talking about just, you know, fast food. We're talking about like linen tablecloth type dining. Well, I mean, you know, like filet mignon and, you know, with all the sides. That's incredible. Yep. Got to put that on the list. Yep. We stayed at an AC hotel. I've not stayed at too many AC hotels. That was another kind of, you know, Marriott Bonvoy, not first, but, you know, definitely something that I'm still cultivating in terms of what is the brand standard for an AC hotel. But it was a nice base of operation. It was the AC hotel waterfront. They did have a shuttle to the Victorian, I always want to say Victorian Albert, but I think it's actually Victorian Alfred waterfront in Cape Town, which is where they have a lot of shopping and a lot of eating. Cool. And now remind me, so South Africa's south, right? It's Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So opposite of us, June would be probably the center yeah, of their winter. winter. So yep. July, late June, July, nice weather, not nice weather. It was a little cold. I fortunately managed to avoid the rainy days, which I could see dampening and making the vacation not so nice. When I was there, I enjoyed the weather, quite honestly. You know, South Africa and I would say Cape Town in particular has a very Mediterranean, almost California-esque climate. So I would probably say, you know, just reverse what California is at that time of the year. And that's kind of what the weather's going to be like. Hmm. That actually doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, it's still doable. And I, I would definitely go again. You know, so it was a little chill. I mean, I did have a jacket on some of the time, but, you know, other times when the sun was out, it was quite nice. It was like a spring day. And I, I have to believe that was probably a really nice break compared to the heat that we've had here in, in the U.S., yeah, I think it was a good a good change of pace. I did Robin Island. I had not done that the previous time I was in Cape Town. And I personally, you know, it was good to do. I'm glad it's off the checklist. I'm not planning to go again. Now tell us what Robin Island is. Robin Island is kind of the Alcatraz of Cape Town. This is where a lot of political prisoners were, including Nelson Mandela. So that's where he was kept during the apartheid regime. So it's a prison island. You go and visit, you can see Mandela's cell. You basically take a ferry to the island and they have a bus tour and they have guides and everything. It's one of the more expensive things. I forget the, how much the ticket price was, but you know, considering how far your money went, I think it was probably like a $60 ticket or something like that, which by the standards of Africa or South Africa, I'm sure it was quite expensive. And when one of the more expensive attractions that, that we spent money on in South Africa, I guess it's worth seeing, but you know, I didn't find it particularly interesting to be completely honest. I thought I thought the tour was a little boring, but that's just my take on it. Hey, but you got a boat ride. I did get a boat ride. Also, we went to a lovely penguin colony near Simonstown. It's great to visit. This is my second time visiting and I didn't mind paying 
whatever the 20 or $30 was to admit myself and get admittance to this lovely little beach where you can see uh, penguins, you know, swim up, see where they nest, you know, see different penguins in different stages of their life. And it's just fun. You know, it's cute to see all these African penguins and pretty close up too. That sounds awesome. So how do you get around? Uber, rental? Our group did rent a car. Fortunately, I, one of the other people in my party, my friend, she was doing the driving. I find myself not able to make the transition to, to drive on the other side of the road. I think I would probably crash the car. <laughs> <laughs> and that is necessary because we did visit a couple other places like the Cape of Good Hope and, you know, like the, uh, you know, like the, the, we mentioned the Penguin Colony, a couple other places outside of Cape Town. And they are relatively far. The first time I, I went to Cape Town with my parents and we actually arranged for a tour guide with a driver who took us uh, for two days in a row, actually, to a lot of these same sites. But this time around, we just did self-guided. I spend a lot of time driving overseas, probably more than I'd like, but I still feel like there are some places that I, I don't know that I'd feel that comfortable driving on mm -hmm. my own. I mean, just some of the stories you hear about South Africa, and I'm sure many of them are overblown, mm -hmm. but you just think about what kind of weird things are you going to run into? You know, yeah. it's one thing if you're in Australia, yeah, you got to get used to the other side of the uh, the road, but you know, you might not have to worry about any, any of the crime or, you know, there's no language barrier. Although South Africans, they, they do speak. You know, it wasn't English. It was part of the empire at one point. So you don't have to worry about the language barrier, but not, I mean, there's so still much. other things that you probably have to worry about that you might not have to worry about in some of the other countries. And, you know, I think it's also different too, depending on where you are in South Africa. I think Cape Town feel, at least it feels much safer than let's say Johannesburg. I mean, not that I really know, because I actually technically not ever left the airport from Johannesburg, but the sense that I got, I don't think we ever felt like we were in danger while we were driving around and you know, and people were friendly and, you know, I, I, I'm sure there was some crime. I'm sure there were times where we could have been, you know, subject to something. But, you know, for the most part, at least Cape Town, it didn't feel super unsafe. Okay. That's reassuring. I know I've probably seen more stories out of, out of Joburg and, mm -hmm. you know, on the crime and stuff. So definitely sounds like Cape Town is definitely the place to be. Yep. I love Cape Town. Again, that, that Mediterranean climate, it, it just feels like you're in California, but you're in, you're in Africa. You can't beat that. So where'd you go from Cape Town? A really great place, Victoria Falls. We flew from Cape Town International Airport through Johannesburg to Victoria Falls. I was able to fly South African Airways for the first time. I actually need to add a plane to my collection, I think, because I, I had not previously flown South African Airways. We arrived in uh, Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. Interesting place. Very interesting place. By the way, I absolutely would recommend this time of uh, the summertime as a time to visit Victoria Falls. Uh, the weather was wonderful. The winters are cool and dry in Zimbabwe. And I think it made for a very, very pleasant climate to visit this place. And just for our listeners, Victoria Falls is essentially kind of like a Niagara Falls or Iguazu Falls. Yeah, I haven't been to Iguazu. I have been to Niagara several times. I would say that Victoria Falls impresses quite a bit more than Niagara. There's a definite difference in geography. If you look at it from overhead, you'll see that it's a much deeper crevasse or whatever that the water falls into. It's at least I feel like the height of the fall seems uh, substantially higher, at least for the perspective from the various viewpoints you're at. And the falls are a little bit more irregular. So there's a, there's different kind of a topology and, and some other things, you know, when, when you're looking at it and you definitely get wet, you know, <laughs> I, I think I had two natural showers that day that we went to go visit the falls. So is there a viewing area above the falls and then you take a boat under the falls or down at the lower area or is it just the lower area? No, the lower area, we did actually hike down there and oh my God, that nearly killed me to go all the way down. I was not a 
happy camper on my on my way back up or even on the way down actually both ways and you know you're not quite accosted but you you've got you know the fear of all these baboons that are kind of roaming wild and this is on the zombie inside of the of the falls actually so I think there is a boat you can take, but it's kind of like an adventure boat. It's not like a made of the mist kind of, of boat you can take at the bottom of the falls. But you know, most of the viewpoints for the the national parks, both on the Zimbabwe and, and Zambian side, are are kind of at the higher level of the falls. And even there, you know, you still get all this mist and water that is kind of just it's suspended in air that depending on the movement of the wind, you know, will just get you'll just get essentially a downpour, you know, out of nowhere. That must have been fun hiking up after that. Yeah, the worst part is that I had the wrong footwear. By the way, you know, Crocs or flip flops or, or or sandals, I think, is the way to go if you're going to visit Zimbabwe, Victoria Falls, or Zambia, Victoria Falls. Probably not the first thing you think of when you think about hiking. I mean, it's don't get me not, wrong, I'd hike in, in flip flops, but you know, not what most people would think of. I don't even think waterproof shoes would work real because I mean, I, I remember distinctly water flowing down the, my leg into the socks. You know, so. <laughs> That's definitely one way to, to experience it. It sounds to me like you had a full body experience of the falls. It was a wet shoe day is what it was. It was a wet shoe day. So you had the full experience with the wet socks and everything else with Victoria Falls. Did you see anything else? And what was your general feeling of Victoria Falls and Zimbabwe? I enjoyed it tremendously. We did do a sunset cruise on the Zimb- uh, the oh boy. Zambezi? The Zambezi. Thank you. You helped me out there. The Zambezi. Geography right. lessons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite nice. I think that was worth definitely the money. Uh, it included some canapes and included unlimited drinks, and it was a good time. It was very nice. So pleasant. The weather, taking a cruise on the Zambezi, and you know, we got to see a little bit of wildlife. We got to see hippos. We got to see a really big crocodile, You know, some birds and some other wildlife. That sounds awesome. Did you see any hungry hippos, or were they just chilling hippos? I'm sure they were hungry. You know, they were mostly just kind of like, you know, hanging out. They didn't try to attack us or anything, which was good, although it was a pretty big boat. That sounds really cool. So you got multiple boat rides on this trip, but- I did. A boat ride on the Zambezi just sounds like a wonderful way to, to, to close out a day. How many days did you spend there? I was only there for two days. And just a couple of thoughts, you know, it, it was a substantially more expensive to find lodging in Victoria Falls than it was in South Africa. Much more expensive. Quite a bit more touristy too, because you know, you really, you know, the only reason why people are out there because they're tourists or they live there, or and they're there to, I guess, support the tourist industry. So, really, a lot of the the places that are out there, and we stayed at a very nice lodge called the Pomara Lodge. I think it ended up being about three hundred dollars a night, which is pretty expensive. There were three of us. It did include breakfast, but again, those are pretty high prices for you know the continent, you know, which is in generally a little bit more affordable. So no points hotels out there or or you were looking for that kind of lodge experience? Not on the Zimbabwe side. I think there is actually a Protea hotel on the Zambian side. I didn't spend a lot of time in Zambia, but I think from what I heard from my friends who did spend a little bit more time than I did over there, that there's just something like the Zimbabwe side is just a little bit nicer. Like the Zambian side is just just one notch more grimy than the Zimbabwe side, strangely enough. And on the Zimbabwe side, they another surprising thing is they take American dollars. You know, they that is their they've essentially dollarized their economy over there. Now, did you know that beforehand and and plan appropriately bringing extra U.S. currency, or how did you adapt? I knew I needed U.S. currency, and you know there is a visa on arrival. By the way, they're expected to pay you know exact change. So I, I had my my twenty dollar bills available to pay for that visa. I forget if I knew that or not, but I did bring some cash with me. Fortunately. 
That's an interesting thing. I was thinking about the same thing in Cairo as I was considering entering the country. You do need to have a significant amount of U.S. currency for a lot of these places where they have visa on arrival, or at least you have to have, I'd say, one of the big three currencies, right? So U.S. dollars, euro, or pounds. Even when we went into Bali, that was still a cash-only operation for that visa on arrival. It's so easy to forget about those things. Yes, it is. But that could just start off your trip or in this case, you know, continue, you know, kind of throw a speed bump in your trip and and really kind of set your day on a completely different take. When we travel, we generally go to like Department of State's travel site, state.travel.gov, I think. And those will usually tell you those things. But it's so easy to forget, like going back and forth. When we did Bali, I totally, I, I didn't bother looking because it'd been so long since we'd been there, but we'd been there so many times. And I just happened to have sufficient currency. Yeah. And it's important to check more than one site because, you know, it's it's funny. It's like, I think we're planning a trip to go to Brazil, right? And they're about to switch over from not requiring visa on arrival to requiring some kind of visa. And a lot of, apparently a lot of the websites have, are not updated just yet because the change hasn't taken effect yet. So it's like, but then what about all these poor people who are planning their travel now and, and, and may not realize that when they arrive, they're going to need to have some money or, or have to have the visa applied for ahead of time. It's so true. And I think that Brazil visa kicks in like one October or something to that effect. Yep. So keep an eye out, people, for uh, your, you Brazil travelers out there. You may want to keep an eye on when uh, visa kicks in. If it kicks in. Hopefully they won't do it. Hopefully they'll, they'll backtrack because, I mean, I think that's one of the last places in, in South America that requires it maybe, or at least not of the big countries at least. You know, as you say that, I need to check whether Lima requires one. <laughs> It didn't in the past. I feel like Peru didn't require it. I feel like Chile used to have a reciprocity fee because I paid it. Then they took that away and then Brazil took away theirs not too long ago and obviously now it's back. Yeah, they took theirs away. I thought it was sometime just before the Olympics. They did that specifically, I thought, for the Olympics. So we've taken a tangent from one Southern Hemisphere continent (laughs) to one, I suppose, a little bit to the West. But any other feelings about Zimbabwe? Not really, except I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect. You know, it's it's only probably the second country I've been to in Africa, but I enjoyed it tremendously. I, I am very happy that I went. I'm very happy with the time of year I went, was happy with the lodgings, mostly happy with the food. I, I would say I ordered a I ordered a steak in Zimbabwe and it was reasonably priced, but my God, that was one of the toughest pieces of meat I've ever had. Wow. Wow. So just give us a feel. You know, obviously you only have two data points, but South Africa compared to Zimbabwe, did it feel like you were in the same continent? Did you feel like there were big differences other than obviously being in a very touristy area with, with well, especially big expenses? You know, I mean, just the climate, the people, you know, the accents, there, there's lots of differences, I think. But did it feel like the same continent, I guess I was, I was trying to get at? Yeah, you definitely felt like you're in Africa. Okay. You know, it's just one of those random things because there are some times that you can be on, you know, on the same continent and, and it just feels so different between a, one country to another. I think you could be confused at times in Cape Town a lot more than you would be in, in Victoria Falls. And I could totally see that, especially between the climate and Cape Town's just a little bit more modern, maybe. It's more developed. It's more cosmopolitan. And, and like I said, you know, they've got vineyards, they've got oceanside roadways that, you know, kind of look like the, the PCH, you know. You know, you could easily be forgiven to say that, you know, this this kind of feels a little bit like somewhere else other than Africa. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Like I said, Cape Town's definitely one of the ones on, on, on my list. One of these days I'll get there. So you're in Zimbabwe and you need to get home. 
Yes. So you mentioned that you were having a hard time finding this. And and I think we talked on, on a past podcast that you ended up, you know, kind of having to resort to Ethiopian Airlines. Yes. Not my first choice. <laughs> and I don't know why it's not my first choice. I mean, it's there's actually nothing wrong with Ethiopian Airlines. It's actually had actually a wonderful flight, but it's not a particularly luxurious airline. The business class that I flew is probably one of the oldest least modern business class seats out there. It really is right now flying of the major Star Alliance carriers. It's probably one of the worst seats that that you can fly in. Is that the lay flat like what uh, LAN has or is it the- It's very similar to the LAN or LATAM, you know, seats that they also have, you know, they're both, both Ethiopian and TAM are, are pretty big 787 carriers. And these are the seats that came probably with the first 787s that were produced, you know, so because they really are that, quite that old in terms of vintage. And the ones in this case are not even fully lay flat. They were angled lay flat. In oh, the so kind of like what Gel and A&A put on their first 787s. Yeah. I forget if it's what they had on their first 787s, but again, almost identical Those were angled to, lay flat. Yeah. It's very similar to what Latam has and maybe what you might see on Turkish Airlines. You know, it's, 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 it's a very similar kind of product. Ugh. That's just hard, <laughs> especially given how long that trip is. Yes. You know, you got to love them. I mean, at least they, they're releasing award space in premium cabins to people. So can't fault them for that, I guess. And it's interesting because I think Seth Miller, he mentioned on one of the Dots Lines Destinations uh, episodes, I think, where he actually talked to the CEO of Ethiopian Airlines and he point blanks at something to the effect of, you know, we need to stabilize our product because it's not a great customer experience when you have one flight with a great lay flat modern seat and then you get in you know onto like a 787 where we've got an angled angled lay flat yep. and it's just not the same experience it's not the same product and you've paid you know all this money to fly it They've got at least three different kinds of seats that are currently flying. They've got triple sevens with, I think with a reverse herringbone kind of super diamond kind of seat. And then they've got the 222 kind of domestic Polaris type of seats, you know, that you're familiar with that they also fly in like KLM and, and a couple of other, quite a few of the domestic airlines use that for their business class here in the U.S. And then you've also got this, that really ancient angle lay flat, which they have on a lot of 787s, I believe. And then I think they also have another product on the A350, which is also might also be another reverse herringbone kind of product. Yeah. So we talked about Cutter having, you know, a variety of products and and it seems like Ethiopian might even have more. Yeah, that's quite the variety. And and quite honestly, the 737 Max that I flew as well had a very nice business class product, probably nicer than domestic uh, US type of business class, actually. But still the seat, perhaps with leg rests or something of that effect? Had leg rests and it was still 2-2, so it wasn't, it wasn't direct aisle. But, you know, I thought for the first leg of my flight, which was, it was still pretty long, still about six, seven hours of flying, or no, maybe not six, seven hours, but including ground time, six or seven hours on the, in, in, on the plane. So. so tell us the route you flew. It was an interesting one. It was the great part was I left from Victoria Falls, from Victoria Falls to Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, another city in, in Zimbabwe, to Addis Ababa. And then from Addis Ababa, we flew to Lome, Togo. And then from Togo to Dulles International, my home airport. So in reality, it was only two flights. It was the first flight with a tech stop and a second flight with a tech stop. But in practice, it was four segments. It was a lot of flying. It was a lot of hours. Now, did you get off in, in BUQ or Lome or were you just on the aircraft the entire time? It's interesting. So for BUQ, no, we just stayed on board. It was pretty seamless. I had no problem with it. Strangely enough, in Togo, though, they made us get off. 
And they said it was because of the, they gave us a little pre-printed sheet says, we're sorry, we have to make you leave because of the TSA. We're trying to talk them out of us making us do this, but for right now, you got to get off. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Blame it on the US. Blamed it on the TSA. So we had to get off for security reasons. It seemed really stupid though, because all we did was we waited in this room with all the other people who are trying to get on this flight from Togo to Dulles, because you know we're in this big holding pen essentially with all the other passengers for this flight. And then we just get back. No additional security screening. I don't see what the value was, unless they were trying to sweep the luggage or sweep what's inside the plane before they let us on. But oh well. Was this a fifth freedom flight where people in Lome could originate, or yes. or were you yes. stuck with all the? Oh, it was a fifth freedom flight. We had people leaving Lome, and we had people joining us in Lome. That's interesting. I it knew is. it was a tech stop, and some searches show it as a hidden stop. I think it's just another. I don't know what they would call that. Just it's a connecting stop, I guess. That's really interesting. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that it was a fifth freedom flight. Yep. And now, did you have a lounge or anything? Did you have any beverages or anything in, in Lome? I did. So not in Lome. Lome, you were just stuck in this, you know, the holding pen site. But in, in Addis Ababa, I had a pretty long layover again. And the funny thing was, you know, it was a fairly long layover. And because of, I guess, award availability, I was actually not on the next available flight to Dulles. Because there was actually another 777 flight between the time I landed in Addis Ababa and the actual flight that I ended up taking. Probably is an award availability thing where maybe that that triple seven flight was was a lot more sold than than the seven eight seven that I ended up taking. Might have had a nicer product too. I don't think it did because I looked at the seat map and didn't look at it. Oh, uh, okay. I did try standing by on and asking somebody at the transit desk, but uh, they they said that it was sold out, so there were no seats available. The downside with that is I was not eligible for a free hotel for my transfer. If my flight was, in fact, the next available flight was, you know, more than what is it, six, seven hours away, then yeah, they would kind of what Turkish, I think Turkish does the same thing. If you're flying in business, or actually, even if you're flying in economy, they may have may have given you some some option. Qatar used to do that. I don't know if they still do it. Yeah. So, but Ethiopian still does. They still give you a voucher for a hotel room and and some some meals and some things, which was, it's just a nice gesture. I probably could have figured out a way to do that. They didn't, uh, they, they offered to give me that for $70 at Victoria Falls Airport to pay into that system. I decided not to because I was, again, standing by for that. You know, if I could, you know, reduce my layover, I did attempt to do it. So I ended up just paying $70 for the in transit hotel, the Skylight Hotel there at the airport itself, inside, you know, airside, which was fine. You know, I mean, it was, you know, $70, but, you know, I had several hours in, in a reasonably nice hotel room. Of course, it had a, a view of of the restaurant cafeteria, essentially, uh, from the, oh, through the window. But it was nice. It didn't quite get as cold as I liked. But you know, otherwise, I really don't have too many complaints. And it was a nice place to spend the night. Before I went to that Skylight Hotel, I did manage to have a meal at the the Cloud Nine Lounge, which is the business class lounge for Ethiopian Airlines. And I did have an interesting revelation, and that is that the kind of the food offerings are really a lot of the in flight meal service items. That you get in business class lounge. So like a lot of the Ethiopian food that I was served later on my my intercontinental flights on Ethiopian, I was like, oh, this is very familiar. I'm like, oh, that's right. These are very much the dishes that we're serving for dinner inside the lounge. So I think they basically have the in-flight catering, catering both the lounges and the in-flight service product. That's interesting. I mean, I could see the economy of that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, and maybe this is skewed a little bit because you're on a 787 versus, you know, an aircraft that doesn't have the better, you know, pressurization, humidity, et cetera, like a 787. If you had, you know, similar food, did you have the same dish between on the ground and in the air? Do you recall? I don't recall, but, you know, I did happen to try some of the cheese and some of the fruit and I was like, 
This is cut up and tastes almost identical to what was served in the lounge. The hmm. Ethiopian food and the injera and all that stuff. This this also this oh, this tastes very familiar to what I had the night before. So I can't say for one hundred percent certainty, but I'm I'm about ninety percent sure that the food dishes that you you will get in the Cloud Nine lunch or the client Cloud Nine lounge for dinner or lunch service are probably going to be very similar to what you're going to be served in business class. Yeah, cool. You know, the reason I ask that about like, you know, if you had the same thing in the air and, and on the ground is because, you know, our taste buds change with the lower humidity and the aircraft environment kind of changes how food tastes in some cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's sort of why, you know, there are some folks that say, oh, you, you know, you're having Dom Perignon at 40,000 feet, but, you know, you're missing out on some of that bouquet, some of that flavor. I unfortunately will probably report that the Ethiopian flight kitchen probably doesn't go to that level of detail. <laughs> touche, touche. Any specific food that jumped out at you? Again, I really enjoyed the traditional Ethiopian food that they served on the plane. I think it's speaking of dining at 30,000 feet, you know, in a pressurized cabin, that is very spicy, uh, flavorful food. I think it holds up. I mean, again, this is the kind of food that probably is designed or not designed, but at least the flavor profile is very compatible with the kind of flight environment that you're in. So I think Ethiopian food, you know, again, very tasty. I probably had too much of it because <laughs> I will provide some too much information here for our listeners. I, I've had a little, lot, a little bit of gas at the very end of this, uh, at the very end of the last flight. I was like, oh my, oh my, maybe a little bit too much Indian or uh, Ethiopian food. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, you got to try the offering. When you eat the traditional food of the nation of the flight crew and you see, and they see you eating with your hands and enjoying the food. It really did, you know, there was one male flight attendant where I thought he was very stoic, very quiet, not particularly friendly. And when he saw me enjoying the national dish, he just kind of opened up and he was so much more friendlier, so much more attentive, you know, after that. Because I think he just realized, oh, this this guy really appreciates, you know, our, our national food. And that's a really good point. Anytime you express interest, we had the sem- uh, similar experience in India where we we expressed interest on the curry and, and the local food and, and plates just kept showing up and showing up and absolutely wonderful. Can't wait to go back. So just remind me because it's been a while since I've had Ethiopian food. Not sure how many of our listeners have had e- Ethiopian food. If I recall, it's usually you know kind of a meat or something else and you get like a spongy bread and you kind of scoop up the meat or you know the dish with that spongy bread and, and eat it that way. Is that a fair characterization? It is. So the main bread is kind of injera, which is kind of this sourdough, kind of almost like a, a pancakey crepe kind of bread that is rolled up. And what you typically do is you unroll that and you put on top of that bread different stews, whether it be like a chicken that's been fried in, in a sauce, uh, some some sort of a, maybe a ground beef or some other kind of a lamb dish, You know, whether they be all, lots of flavorful vegetables. So they just put dollops of these different stews on top of this bread. And then what you're supposed to do is take a little bit of that bread or, you know, and just, you know, basically use it to pick up some of that stew or that, you know, whatever the vegetable that's on there, then, you know, you make a little, use your hand and, and make a little pocket out of it and just put it, you know, put it in your mouth and eat it. No utensils. <laughs> that's an interesting way to eat on a plane, I have to say. I might say, uh, you know, I did manage to probably get a stain somewhere or another, but you know, whatever. I love the fact that you went all in and not only did you try the food, you you had the food in the traditional way. I mean, I've done, there's a great little Ethiopian place up in uh, Adams Morgan in DC. In fact, I need to look to see if it's still there. 
that we used to frequent. And it's a different experience. And DC's Ethiopian food game is quite strong for our listeners. Those of you who don't live in the DC area, DC has a couple of different ethnic foods that are hitting above DC's weight class. And Ethiopian is definitely one of those uh, cuisines. Well, probably one of the reasons that Ethiopian flies to Dulles multiple With times multiple a day, Multiple flights I think. a day, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the food you thought was good. Any thoughts on the in-flight entertainment? Any other final thoughts? It was good enough. It wasn't great. I would say everything else is pretty, you know, standard or I would dare to say a little mediocre, but the service was good. You know, the flight attendants, I dare say, I, I kind of thought they were friendlier than the Qatar Airways flight attendants, believe it or not. I would say the food service, again, the, the highlight is obviously the Ethiopian food. All the other food was a little meh, you know, they had a lot of food. So, I mean, you're not going to go hungry, but the quality of it was just so-so. I mean, like I had a, the cheese plate. They had like two cheeses and they were the same two cheeses on the second flight and the third flight. You know, it was like <laughs> one cheddar and one other, some other nameless cheese. And they were all the same with a slight off color. So, you know, the Western food is probably nothing to home, write home about. But, you know, I think the, the Ethiopian food kind of makes up for it and the service makes up for it. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of, you know, a pretty generic or, or basic, a premium business class product. But, you know, if there's space, that's the flight you need. That is the key. And it was literally from the place where I was in Africa directly to my home airport on one ticket in one award redemption, which is amazing. So to close out the trip, I just have to ask, because last time we flew into Dulles, ironically enough, was over just following Easter. And they had just been rolling out these new machines that were supposed to do a whole lot more visual recognition. And they only had six working machines, even though they had 20 or 30 of the old global entry machines. Have they fixed that? You know, what was your experience with global entry? This particular Ethiopian flight landed pretty late. Uh, it was landing about almost nine o'clock, I think, at night, between eight and nine, which is after a lot of the the big rush, right? Because you see a lot of those uh, European flights landing earlier in the afternoon, not not so much at that time of night. So I, th I think we were probably one of the few international flights coming. I was the only one waiting. I mean, I had no wait for a global entry machine, number one. There was maybe one other global entry person trying to use them at the same time. And there was at least, I think it was probably not that many more, but it was definitely with more than six. This was probably like eight or nine, maybe, uh, global entry machines. And I had no problem with the facial recognition. And then they went. I went right up to the agent line, which is what you're supposed to do there. And I was called by name. They were like, Thomas. I'm like, yes. And so I, I walked up to the agent that called my name. And he asked if I had anything to declare, which I did not. And away I went. And it was a, probably a one to two minute experience. Wow. That's interesting. Called by name. Yes. Our experience at Philly, first of all, they had the old machines. They didn't have the new machines. Okay. Second, as always happens, because our daughter's biometrics don't match what, what her passport looks like. I mean, you, you know, you go from two and months then, to yeah. 20 months. It's a, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit of a change. And so they told us that we needed to fill out that old blue form. Oh, wow. That's not something I've seen in a while. That's an antique. Yeah, exactly. That was the first time that we've had to fill out that form, I would say, in five or more years. And, and, and mind you, our daughter's been on many, many flights where that visual or the, the facial rec never works. So that was a little bit surprising. Again, old machines versus uh, Dulles with the new machines. So yep. interesting to see as uh, CBP rolls out this technology. Definitely encourage any of our listeners to to comment on what they're seeing and experiencing, just because I think that changes your arriving home experience, right? 
in a negative way for you, apparently, and positive yeah, way for me. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we ended up taking, you know, five, 10 minutes extra because, you know, we get our slips and normally we just walk up to a person and the person's like, okay, you know, takes our daughter's passport. Okay. Fills it in and, and off you go. And this time it was like, no, 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 go back. Don't collect your, your $200, fill out your form and then come back. Sounds like what I experience when I go to Dubai. <laughs> With that wonderful technology made by, uh, who is it? Samsung? My fellow countrymen. (laughs) (laughs) So we've been trying to do this guest affair uh, game. Usually we do it when we have a guest. Just makes a little bit, or at least I think we had thought it made a little bit more fun, but no guest today. You still found one. I did not. So I'll find one next episode. I've got a fear for you to guess the price on today and we'll see how close you get. There we go. So my flight is Los Angeles to Dulles in United business class, domestic business class. It is in a Polaris configured 777. One way, November 10th. How much am I paying for that one way fare? Ooh, one way. That throws me off. So round trip, I usually see before the pandemic, that was probably about eight to $950, 800 to $950 round trip. Now I usually see about 1000 to 1200 so if you're going one way, and we're talking dollars, right? Not miles? Yes, US dollars. I think you're going to pay a little bit of a premium. It's not going to be just 50%. So I'm going to I'm gonna go with $650. Oh, wait. Wait, hold on a second. It's November. It's November. And we were seeing lower fares. Yeah. I'm going to revise it. I know you told me I was over. I'm going to revise it to 450 450 Okay. You were definitely under now. The answer is Pentium. Pentium? Yes. What do you think that means if I say Pentium? Oh my gosh. I'm thinking an Intel processor, quite honestly. No, no, no. 500 $586. That's what Pentium means? 586 Well, it's, you know, it was after the 486 so, you know, technically it would have been the 586 but yes. There you go. That's me being a little bit more geeky than usual. Sorry. <laughs> you beat me. At least I was thinking on the same line. But it's interesting. You, you kind of went on opposite sides of that number. Well, I mean, the thing is, is like I was seeing somebody shared a 500 and, you know, $560 airfare that was business class, but like with poor timing and a stop mm-hmm. and not lay flat mm-hmm. in September. So I was starting to think, you know, that we're going to start seeing that cliff that we've been expecting, you know, two Septembers ago now, and it just hasn't come available. So I guess in my head, I was thinking, you know, a round trip fare on a Polaris might have a 50 to, to 60% premium. So you go from that 500 to like eight, eight or 900, 800 isn't terribly amazing. Actually, that's pretty reasonable because I think a day or two before or after, I think there were definitely seven and $800 fares for the same one way. So yeah. I think that happens to be, I think November 10th, I think that's when we observe Veterans Day, right? Isn't it November 11th? That's Veterans Day? I think November 11th is Saturday this year. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Then we would observe it on so Friday. So, it's possible that there's a little bit of a dip in the revenue pricing because of the holiday, or maybe the days around it are a little bit more expensive because those would be the actual travel days for anybody trying to utilize that uh, federal holiday. Yeah. So, that's kind of like, you know, traveling on a Saturday, right? Or, you know, Saturday Christmas is usually, usually, yeah, yeah. People want to be where you want to be on Saturday yeah, or Christmas Day. Yeah. Not traveling. That's a great find. It's an interesting fare. I, I do think that it's not the most amazing fare. It's definitely not a mistake fare or even a deeply discounted fare. But I think it's representative of what would be a reasonable cost, I think, for one-way transcon these days. Because I've very much seen a lot of one-way transcons in business costing you know seven or $800. And a lot of those are on 
just narrow body, let alone, you know, a, a nice wide body product. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good to see. It really is good to see, you know, some of these fairs coming down. They've just been, you know, in the stratosphere for far too long. A little bit too long, I think. Hopefully we'll see some of the things start to moderate a little bit. Okay. Well, for our listeners, definitely let us know if you like this kind of way that we try to close out the episode with the guest affair. I think it's interesting because it, it sort of helps us see a little bit more on the cash fair side of, you know, what the opportunities are number one, and, and, and kind of where, where the market seems to be going. Obviously, we find kind of random things. LEXIAD is actually probably the most normal fare that we've talked about. I guess I, I provided us the most boring fare uh, so far. <laughs> <laughs> boring, but you know, a transcon is totally, you look at, uh, I, I think on the checking in episode, Robert was talking about taking JetBlue on his transcon. I mean, I think a lot of people fly you know, from one coast to the other. So I think this is, it's a very relevant fare. It is a very relevant fare. And, you know, by the way, a wonderful way to use all your Amex incidental credits. I will say uh, quite a few of my travel bank dollars uh, went toward this ticket. There you go. You can't beat that. It's great to find ways to use that, you know, to apply those credits. But if you don't put them to use in a way that you'd use your own money for or close to it, then you're really not getting the value out of them. Speaking of value, I think, you know, just to tease a future episode, I think, where we'll hopefully go and, and do a little bit more of a discussion of kind of the redemption side and how we make use of the value of our points on the various kind of trips that they're looking to book in the near future. Oh, yeah. That'll be a great, great episode. A little teaser for next episode there. Yep. I think so. Well, that's the show. Thank you for joining us. And we hope that you enjoyed listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a Milonomics Patreon member and get access to even more in-depth miles, points, and travel content. Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story. 